is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Jane McNaughton here with you today for the Victorian Country Hour. Coming up, Peak Woolbody Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for sheep and goats. Fire ants were detected in Tasmania last week after hitching a ride on a parcel, which has raised further concerns about their spread. So how at risk are we? Agriculture Victoria will talk us through what measures are in place to avoid the pest visiting our state. And one of Australia's largest wine grape producers is investing in driverless tractors, a move that could drastically reduce the number of lower-skilled workers the company needs on their remote property. Shoot me through a text on 0467 842 722. But first to South Australia, tractors, harvesters and trucks have lined the streets of Renmark in the Riverland as growers in Australia's largest wine grape growing region protest for greater sustainability in their industry. Wine grape growers and contractors drove dozens of farm vehicles through Renmark in the protest against unsustainable prices. Growers are choosing to dump their grapes or let them rot on the vines rather than be paid below the cost of production for harvesting them. Eliza Bellage spoke with growers who are choosing to take action and protest. Savagagas. Uh, we just start, uh, got a few of the boys, a few of the girls together to start a bit of a protest to show awareness in the industry. I'm only young, I'm still 25, and well, if the industry collapses, I collapse, really. This is all I know, and this is what I love doing, and I want to keep doing it, but at these prices, we can't keep doing it. And Sava, you've taken to the streets with your tractors, trucks, and harvesters down the main street of Renmark. What did that feel like? Yeah, it feels you know what, it feels good because this is what we need to do because, like I said, if we don't do anything, I'm out. And I don't know anything better. I'm stuffed. That's it. I'm done. And were people mostly pretty, um, you know, patient for you guys to move this this action, this Yeah, there, there was a couple of guys that stopped me there and said, good, keep doing it. The Riverland's going to collapse if this is not happening. We, we are the Riverland. Us farmers are the Riverland. We are the food bowl. And what's the mood amongst you and your fellow growers today? Uh, a lot of anger. A lot of anger. We're all angry. We're all angry. I'll, I'll be honest, I've got to harvest tomorrow. I don't want to harvest. Why should I harvest when I don't know what I'm getting? And are you planning to deliver your grapes this year for vintage? Oh, that's still something I've got to think about. Lastly as well, you obviously had that big heated meeting yesterday with a big turnout. You know, How do you feel after that meeting yesterday? I feel like more people are hungry. Hungry to get more answers. Um, yeah, I'm Jarvis Wannenberg and I'm a vineyard contractor in Riverland. And Jarvis, are you part of this big action today, this protest of vehicles? Well, yes, I am because, um, well, with the grape industry being the way it is, like, uh, it affects everyone, contractors like myself, businesses, you know, no one's spending any money and it affects the whole region. And how long have you been working in the industry for? Uh, about five, six years now. Yeah. And I guess what have you seen over that time? Well, you know, when I first started, times were a little bit better and then now they've slowly dwindled off and it's just, yeah, this year's looking really shocking, so... Yeah. And what did it feel like to take to the streets with your tractors, trucks and harvesters? Well, it's good. Hopefully we can just make someone listen and, um, you know, appreciate what's actually going on in the industry and, yeah, because so far no one's really taken any notice. 
And, yeah, Jarvis, you were saying you and Sava are some of the younger guys here. You know, the average age of growers and people in the industry is, you know, you know, 60 or 50. Why is it really important for you young blokes to say something as well? Well, you know, if um, the industry goes down now, what future do we have? You know, like I started out my business study uh, in 2020, and like, it's already dwindling off because uh, the industry is going downhill. And what has that meant for you? Have you been able to pay your bills? Well, only just... <laughs> Yeah, no, it's looking pretty, yeah, it's pretty bad at the moment. And what sort of action would help you? Well, we'll just get someone to listen, like, to realise what the wineries are doing and uh, that's wrong, like, you know, some of the stuff they're coming out with, yeah, just not right. Riverland great grower Jarvis Wandenberg speaking there with Eliza Bellage. I'd love to know if you've ever taken to the streets in a tractor. The text line is 0467 842 I know a couple of years ago, uh, just down the road here in Ballarat, the main street or part of the main street was blocked off by uh, many, many tractors, really a sea of green uh, in protest to the Western Renewables Link transmission lines. So if you've ever taken part in a tractor protest, shoot me a message on 0467 842 and also it's the 1st of February today. I'd love to get your January rainfall totals in on the text line as well. It's always nice to see uh, what's going on around the state, especially after what was a pretty wild start to the year. That number again is 0467 842 But sticking with wine for the moment, the amount of Australian wine being exported globally has declined in the past year as people right around the world drink less wine. Both the volume and value of wine being shipped out of the country fell over the past 12 months, according to Wine Australia's latest export report. Wine Australia's Managing of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, says it's not all doom and gloom, but the figures do reflect the tough year experienced by many wine producers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Australian wine exports um, fell by 2% in value to $1.9 billion and 3% in volume to 607 million litres in the 12 months to December 2023. Over the long term, how does that sort of compare the the amount and and volume that we're exporting in the long term? How does that sort of compare to previous years? Oh, look, um, the positive of these figures are an improvement on those that we reported in the September 2023 report, where we had value at $1.81 billion. So, Although that, that still is well below long-term averages. And was this expected, this kind of decline, or, and by this much? Yeah, look, I mean, the trading conditions remain extremely challenging for Australian exporters. So if you're looking at the 112 destinations that received Australian wine during the year, um, only 44 imported more value than they did the previous year. And globally, wine consumption is declining. And there's a number of reasons for that. Obviously, there's this global economic tightening, which has seen people, um, you know, reducing their discretionary spending. And also consumers are being far more conscious of their health. As you say, that decline is is widespread across quite a number of markets. There is it a pretty consistent reason why markets are taking less Australian wine, seeing that Europe and North America are are two particular markets where there has been a, a, a drop. Are they the same reasons why they're taking less of our wine? Yeah, look, it's very consistent across the board, and it's not just for Australia, and it's also not just wine. So we're actually seeing alcohol consumption fall um, as well. And then adding to these pressures, we've also got a global oversupply of wine. So we've had an an average excess um, wine production of just under 3 billion litres every year since 2012, and that's more than double Australia's total wine production. And then you throw on top of that, you know, health and wellness. Some consumers are abstaining from drinking wine. 
Um, others are drinking less but paying more, while some are also seeking sort of no and low alcohol options. The, the Australian drinkers sort of picking up the pieces there a bit, or is is that a similar trend? Are you able to say? It's it's a very similar trend um, in the domestic market. Um, the Australian domestic market is, um, uh, you know, a very mature market and. Um, it's, it's a very similar trend that we're seeing um, in markets like the US and UK. And one of the trends is we're seeing, you know, consumption growing at sort of premium wine segments, you know, that's sort of $10 or more per bottle, while that has a, the bigger volume commercial and has been declining. So that, that really does indicate that consumers are drinking less, but perhaps choosing to purchase at higher price points. But even at those higher price points, we've actually seen the, the, the growth rates lower um, than in previous years. And this does um, disproportionately affect Australia, given the majority of our exports um, in volume are in the commercial price segments. Are there any bright spots in this report, seeing markets like Hong Kong and Singapore uh, are increasing in, in what they're taking? Yeah, and the, the latest quarter, the, the figures are quite positive as well. So um, whether that's, uh, that, that trend will continue, um, it does show there is some positivity in the latest quarter. Um, and yeah, like Hong Kong and Singapore were standout um, growth markets um, and driving some growth into Asia. Um, and the number of exporters into those regions has been growing as well. Um, but we also need to make the point that, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore are key trading hubs in that region. And, you know, as such, some of the wine is on shift to other markets in that region. What about the China factor here? Are they simply out of the equation for the whole time that this report covers? Yeah, look, uh, our exports to China um, really have uh, plummeted over the last sort of three years. And obviously there's a process to play out um, with the investigation at the moment. So I don't really want to preempt any of uh, those, those outcomes. But that said, you know, China is still an important market um, for Australian wine. And over many years, Australian wine companies have developed close relationships with importers, buyers and consumers of Australian wine in China. And those relationships remain important to our wine community. More broadly, with exports overall, um, you know whether or not China comes back on on board, is this given what we are hearing about global wine consumption? This is a a, a trend that is looking to continue. Oh look, as I said, the, the latest quarter we've actually seen an increase in exports. So whether that does um, continue or it's just a, a short term uh, increase, uh, time will tell. But you know there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of hurdles that we need to overcome. But you know we're we're aware of those challenges and. You know, as an industry, we're meeting those. And in terms of you know, market development activities, there's still a lot going in on that space in terms, in terms of you know, trying to drive um, Australian wine sales in a lot of these markets. What do wine produ- Australian wine producers take from a set of figures like this? What, what is the sort of takeaway from those in the business, of, you know, looking at these numbers? Oh, look, I would still say if you're looking at where the growth is coming from, um, Asia is still an overall market where there's growth opportunities. But as, as many of those markets uh, are still emerging wine drinkers, you know, it will be volatile, but it's really a long-term play into, into that region. Um, you're looking at the US, no doubt the US is still a very challenging market, but it's still the world's biggest premium market, and that the, the premium opportunity remains, even though we know at the moment it's quite challenging. And then into Europe, definitely, you know, that, that part of the world is facing a lot of challenges. Inflation is much higher there. Than other, than other markets around the world. But with the UK, we're still number one there. It's still our biggest market. And, um, you know, we're actually keeping up pace with the market in terms of growth. So if you're looking at what's happening in retail in terms of the off-trade market, 
you know, Australian sales actually increased in value by 2% in, in the last 12 months. So it's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Wine Australia's Manager of Market Insights, Peter Bailey, speaking there with Selena Green. Have you changed your drinking habits recently? I know that we were having a discussion in the office about uh, people potentially uh, reducing the amount that they've been drinking since COVID, for example. Have you decided to not drink as much wine? Or if you're a winemaker, has that been affecting your business? That's 0467842722 is the text line. And we're also asking for your January totals for rainfall on the country hour today as well. Uh, got one in here from uh, Carrara. Sorry, Carrara. Sorry if I've got the pronunciation of your town wrong there but it's just south of Wedderburn one in here from Anne saying 137 mils for January 307 mils if it included the last week of December as well a lot of rain around in your region thanks Anne uh, one in here from another Anne uh, G'day Jane 124 mils of rain here in the Thorpedale area for January wettest January in five years and yes Anne I've been doing a bit of driving through uh, from Ballarat through to uh, Sale and East Gippsland to visit family over the past uh, month or so. And yes, it's looking very green down there in Gippsland, even if you're just looking uh, out of the car window from the highway. And Robin Shilton has also messaged in saying 44 for January, but it's drying now. So Rob's started feeding. On The text line is 0467 842 And again, sticking with wine, one of Australia's largest wine grape producers is investing in driverless tractors in a move that could drastically reduce the number of lower-skilled staff the company needs on its remote properties. Duxton Vineyards produces 26 varietals over its 2,500-hectare property in southern New South Wales and in northern West Victoria. The company is trialling a tractor from New Zealand, uh, from the New Zealand company Oxen, which plans to rapidly increase its driverless fleet if everything goes well. Elsie Kennedy has the story. That's the sound of an Oxen smart machine. It's a tractor without a driver that's remotely operated via a tablet. It was developed by a New Zealand company specifically for vineyards, and it can mow grass, trim suckers and spray weeds. It's the first one in Australia, and it was brought here by Duxton Vineyards, one of Australia's largest wine grape producers. Duxton Vineyards General Manager Wayne Ellis says he hopes it will save the company money in the long term. We're remote where we are now, so we're about an hour and a half from Muldura. Um, the machine is driverless uh, and we find it difficult to get employees, so it's not replacing an employee. It's doing tasks that we actually don't have employees in place to do. And it can do multiple tasks at one. And so one of these machines costs between three hundred and $500,000. How long do you think it'll take you to, to pay off the cost of that machine? Uh, one full year. How many of these machines do you think you might end up buying? All going well with this and we get the extra R&D, so we're implementing some new machines that we would like to have inside the, the Australian canopy. 20. If in the future you were to invest in 20 of these machines, they're replacing four staff each. That's about... 80 positions? Won't replace four staff each because you still need a controller. It changes your scope from uh, a farm operator to someone that's more technical advanced. So even for higher ed students that are in science or physics or IT, this is uh, a change in agriculture, horticulture, opposed to what we've seen that you're just a tractor driver. 
it actually changes and you, you're actually into automation, which is robotics. Now I wanted to, if possible, just briefly put this in context. There's been a few things happening with wine prices. Can you tell me a bit about what's happening with wine prices and how that's affected your business decision making? Uh, well, the wine prices is challenging. So Australia is definitely in oversupply, but so is the globe. Um, the benefit of that over the last year, the globe has had a down harvest, which is starting to shrink the surplus globally, which will improve the pricing in the next um, year or two. So the decision around it was made prior to uh, the glut, is what we call it. Um, it's more about our regenerative agriculture model. So when you look at uh, regenerative or, or uh, sustainable it's the end-to-end, so it can do four jobs at once. So, yeah, at the moment, that's a single tractor with a single implement using fuel. Um, that can do four, so we can do four jobs at once. So a quarter reduction um, in fuel consumption um, means the truck comes up here 50 or 75% less, which is that end-to-end uh, sustainable opposed to what we really do in compaction. The weight of me standing in the vineyard would be the same as under that track vehicle. It's about four tonne, fully loaded with water, it's five tonne. But because it's tracked, its down pressure on the soil is better than me standing in the vineyard currently and opposed to a traditional uh, wheeled tractor. It's substantially less compaction and we do minimal tillage. So we used to herbicide the mid-row. What it's doing now is, is slashing the mid-row. And that gives an organic and micro benefit. The technology we're doing and the infrastructure we're trying to do is use, get the most out of what we've got available and leaving the smallest footprint in, in the ground that we now operate on. Smart Machines Australian representative Angus Cochran says the company's first Australian trial has presented challenges. But he's hoping once the machine is adapted to Australian conditions, he'll be able to sell a lot of the machines. So currently we're running our first Australian Oxen, which is an autonomous vineyard tractor. And right now it is uh, slashing and defoliating. And so this machine's been built for, it's been built in New Zealand. Yeah, so it's custom built for New Zealand, so we're adapting to the Australian environment with this machine. Uh, One of our biggest problems with Australia is the temperature, so we have adapted for that with bigger cooling systems on our mechanical and electrical side, as well as dust. So we do have problems where we will come out of a row and with our current safety system that's designed for New Zealand we use LiDAR and with a big wall of dust coming up that does cause the machine to stop sometimes so our new never, our new safety systems will be able to penetrate through that dust. That was Angus Cochran ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. You are listening to the Victorian Country Hour. It's 24 minutes past 12. Jane McNaughton with you today and for the rest of this week. Uh, some messages coming through on the text line. Lots of rainfall figures and also this one saying, I'm sorry, do you call tractor drivers low skill? Uh, thank you for your text message. And uh, some more rainfall figures coming in now. Uh, one here from Leo saying, uh, G'day, Jane. 82 mils for January in Gundaraaring. Lucky some of those thunderstorms went around us. Yes, indeed, Leo. Uh, another one here saying uh, 100 and, sorry, 211 mils for January on the big hill near Strathbogie. Thank you for that, Jeff. And uh, one from Mary as well saying, G'day, Jane, you're right about the wet summer in Gippsland. Neerham's rainfall for the month of January was 118 mils, compares with 33 last January. 
big upsets to highland hay and silage schedules, bigger impact on weeds and thistles as well. Uh, Plenty more of your rainfall texts coming up on the Victorian Country Hour, as well as rural news and weather. But first, fire ants that were detected in Tasmania last week after hitching a ride in a parcel. And this has raised concerns about their spread. Businesses in New South Wales have been in lockdown and an emergency biosecurity order is in place in that state as the invasive pest has continued to move south of the Queensland border. So how at risk are we here in Victoria? Nigel Ainsworth is Deputy Director of Invasive Species Science with Agriculture Victoria. Nigel, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you. So first of all, what are fire ants for people who are unaware? Yeah, fire ants are a species of ant uh, native to South America. Uh, They've spread to the US quite a long time ago and over decades have spread around most of the world and become a very considerable pest there. Uh, They've been in Australia since uh, at least 2001. That's when they were first found. And there's been a, a national effort to eradicate them running ever since then. Um, the the problems they create, they're, they're a crop pest. They, they do damage crops because they feed on a whole wide range of things. Uh, they also sting people, pets, livestock, uh, domestic animals. They disrupt native ecosystems and they can even damage infrastructure such as irrigation equipment, air conditioning units, things like that. So they're just all around a very bad thing quite a brutal impact on the environment and obviously on agriculture as well. Uh, You mentioned crops there. Are there any particular crops that they go after or is it sort of a smorgasbord for fire ants if they do get into an area that's got large amounts of cropping? Yeah, a a smorgasbord is is pretty like it. They will damage a a pretty wide range of crops uh, depending on what other food sources available at the time, how the crop's being grown and things like that. But yeah, wide ranging across uh, quite a number of crop species. They're not specialist like you know, potato beetles or things like that. So livestock, you mentioned, can be stung by fire ants too. What are some of the signs that uh, a sheep or a cow has been stung? They will have the same sort of symptoms that people have who have been stung, which is sort of raised welts uh, on the area that they've been stung on. And of course, uh, if they're stung a lot of times, they will be quite distressed, particularly if they're um, if they're penned up or tethered and can't get away from the fire ants. So there's some, uh, some nasty pictures online of what happens to animals that get stung by a large number of fire ants on sensitive areas like the nose and things like that. Yeah, I've I've heard that the stinging can occur around the eyes, mouth, nose, and can even cause suffocation and blindness in some cases. Yeah, it certainly can. Um, Fire ants are a particularly bad stinging insect because each individual ant can sting multiple times. They're not like a bee that stings once and then uh, that's the end of it. Uh, And also they have a swarming behaviour when they're uh, disturbed. So you don't just get one fire ant commonly, you'll get dozens or even more swarming on you all stinging multiple times so uh, it's not great. So the presence of fire ants in New South Wales and uh, there's also been one found in Tasmania recently that hitchhiked on a parcel so what's Victoria doing to ensure that fire ants don't enter our state? 
Yeah, we, we have a range of things that we've been doing for a, a long time, not just in response to the recent fines. So what we do is we have a, a risk-based approach where we look at the things that could carry fire ants. So uh, left to themselves, they could move a few kilometers a year just by flight of mated queens. The reason fire ants spread very quickly is when humans unintentionally carry them around. And the things that carry fire ants around are compost, soil, hay, straw, um, potted plants, these sorts of things. So that's where the risk is for Victoria, that these things would get moved down from the main infestation in Queensland. So we have systems to make sure that uh, um, either the materials fire ant free or has been treated and is inspected on arrival by people who know, know, know what to look for. Uh, so that's one strand which is trying to um, regulate these fire ant house material or fire ant carriers as they're sometimes known and that's quite a big effort that involves uh, thousands of movements uh, over the last few years and the next strand is to see that if they do get through despite all that that we pick them up very early at a stage where it's feasible to quickly get rid of them so we have a surveillance program with uh, our staff going out to um, over 100 sites every year and checking them visually and using lures to attract ants and making sure that uh, none of those ants that we find are fire ants so that's number two and then the third one is just promoting awareness of fire ants so that uh, people working in industries or just members of the public who uh, see a funny looking ant or get stung by an ant uh, can decide whether it's a suspect fire ant and report it to us. So we get quite a lot of reports all the time, people who've found ants and uh, sometimes we can tell what they are from photographs, sometimes we have to obtain a specimen and check them. So yeah, there, there's a lot going on and Victoria. And what if what are the differences between uh, a, a regular ant identification and a fire ant? What should people be looking out for? Yeah, that's uh, relatively straightforward. They're not big, scary ants. They're not huge ants. They're quite small. They're uh, around two to six millimeters. And it's also characteristic that you get multiple sizes of ants coming out of the same nest, which is not the case for quite a lot, a lot of other ants. Um, they're a sort of reddish brown with a darker abdomen. Um, and the nests can vary. Sometimes the nest is just a disturbed patch of soil. Sometimes, especially in cooler, wetter conditions, you get a distinct mound. But what you don't get is a clear entrance and exit hole. So the ants just seem to appear out of the mound. There's no central hole that they go into. And then, of course, if you're unlucky enough to get stung, the, uh, the actual stinging, the aggressive nature is a bit distinctive. Most native ants will um, leave you alone or run away if they're disturbed. The uh, the fire ants will actually come for you. So they're, they're, they're the main ones. If you have something that meets that description, then we would certainly like to know about it. Nigel, thank you very much for your time this afternoon on The Country Hour. Thank you. Nigel Ainsworth, Deputy Director of Invasive Species Science with Agriculture Victoria, giving us the lowdown on 
well, quite brutal little fire ants. It is 18 minutes to the news at one o'clock. Uh, we better get kicking with rural news. Uh, this afternoon, we're joined by Faith Tadalugian. Good afternoon. G'day, Jane. Let's start rural news in Western Australia with the news that the ship carrying livestock, which has been sitting off the port of Fremantle for several days, has docked overnight. Garrett Mundy explains. MV Bahija had been languishing off the coast since Monday, a fortnight after it was redirected back to Fremantle amid security concerns in the Red Sea. The ship is carrying more than 15,000 head of livestock, mostly sheep. With Perth sweltering through a period of extreme heat, animal welfare advocates had demanded all the animals be offloaded. The Federal Department of Agriculture last night confirmed two independent veterinarians had boarded the vessel to assess the animals, while the nation's chief vet said all was being done to ensure their welfare. The ship docked at North Quay under the cover of darkness this morning, but it's not clear how many animals will be taken off before it resumes its journey. Dr Holly Ludeman from the Livestock Collective says no animal welfare concerns have been reported by the ship's onboard veterinarian. I've been in communication with the veterinarian on board and the sheep and cattle are in good health and welfare uh, and you know, the reports are going back to the federal government every day uh, and the appropriate systems are being put in place. WA Farmers Livestock President Jeff Pearson wants the situation resolved as soon as possible, but understands a certain amount of stock will likely be taken off the ship. Yeah, so it looks under the situation of, of going into a long-haul voyage that we may have to relax some of the, the numbers on the, on the ship. So potentially uh, there will be some uh, form of livestock uh, offloaded. Um, there'll be potentially a, a small amount of sheep, um, which would will go to direct to slaughter and potentially a small amount of cattle to go as well, which is probably around about that sort of four to 500 head. Let's head to the top end. Yesterday, the Northern Territory Supreme Court dismissed a legal challenge to an application by Singleton Station to access groundwater. Traditional owners from Ali Karung and the Arid Lands Environment Centre both questioned the legality of the station's licence to extract up to 40,000 megalitres of water a year, making it the NT's largest groundwater licence. Justice Peter Barr dismissed their arguments, allowing Singleton Station to push forward with its plans to develop a huge horticultural project, 350 k's north of Alice Springs. Peter Wood is the chair of Fortune Agribusiness, which owns Singleton Station. He's pleased with the outcome. It does enable us now to get on with the, the, next, the next stage of the project, which is to deliver the environmental impact statement, which um, the EPA you know, issued our terms of reference for that late last year. So we'll get on with that. Uh, we can now get on with that with some, with some confidence. Chief Executive of the Arid Lands Environment Centre, Adrian Tomlinson, is disappointed with the court ruling but says they're hopeful the environmental assessment process will reveal the potential negative impacts on the region. It's a red flag when the uh, traditional owners and, and local people are so unanimously opposed to this. They know their country. This is a very bad um, outcome today. Clearly it shows the water laws are broken, but there is also an environmental impact assessment process happening, and that still has years to run. This is the first licence that's been given the highest level of environmental impact assessment, and that's the chance to really drill down and understand these impacts. This should have happened first, but we can have a look at the deep lowering of the groundwater table this causes. There's hope that we can finally get the right outcome and this water licence can, can be stopped. And we've heard a lot over the last week or so about heavy rain in the north and a wet summer here in Victoria. But in Tasmania, some farmers are keen for a good rain to reboot pastures. 
on Flinders Island off the northeast tip of Tasmania. It's been a bit of a challenge after missing out on recent rains. Tom Yule runs Angus cattle at Killycranky and he turned off stock early when things dried out. Rainfall last year we ended up about 100 mils down on our annual average. So about 550 mils I tipped out last year. Uh, we sort of had a sporadic spring. We got a spring in October thankfully. Um, oh, about the time there, there were some decent bushfires over here which were behaving a bit like a summer bushfire. It was that dry. But um, yeah, we haven't sort of managed to snag some of those rains that have been hitting parts of Tassie and a lot of Victoria. They've sort of gone around us. But saying that, we've we've had about, I think we'd be up to almost 40 or 50 mils for the year. And um, I'd sort of pulled the triggers to wean early, just knowing that I didn't have that bulk of spring to sort of carry everything through till sort of March-ish, which is when I usually... Weans. Is there much hay moving around the island? Definitely down. I don't know if you'd say half or something. The amount of hay was cut this year or probably less. Well, fingers crossed, Tom will get the rain he needs. And Jane, that wraps up Rural News. Thank you, Faith. Faith Tablugin there up in the northeast giving us our daily dose of rural news today. Uh, on the text line, we've got one in here saying uh, from Pete from Central Victoria... Do ant eaters such as echidnas eat fire ants? I'm not sure, Pete. Uh, it, I, I would imagine uh, they may get stung too. Who knows? Um, if anyone does have the answer to that, I'd love to know. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. Uh, we're just about to go to the weather, but I thought it would be fitting to read some of your rainfall text messages out before we head to Stephanie Miles. Uh, we've got uh, Ruth from Rural Lee and Gather here saying it's still very green in South Gippsland. Some farmers still making hay, 80 mils for the month of January. Thank you for that, Ruth. Uh, Clyde has said 204 mils near Bright for January. Not sure if I have ever seen the Ovens Valley looking so green at the beginning of February. Thank you, Clyde. Uh, David in Coleraine, uh, 63 mils in Coleraine for January, well above the average of 20. Indeed it is. Uh, One here from Paul in East Bainton saying uh, 232 mils for January there. And Doug in Horsham saying, G'day, Jane, 72 mils over five days for Horsham West. Typically, the lawn is a dust bowl for the birds at this time of the year. But the damn lawn won't stop growing. Doug, I did my lawn yesterday here in Ballarat too, uh, after only a week of it (laughs) doing it last time. So I think that's a a backyard problem many around the state are experiencing at the moment. Uh, But to get the latest on what's going on with our weather across Victoria, Stephanie Miles, Senior uh, Forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology, joins us now. Uh, Good afternoon, Steph. Hi, Jane. How's it going? Pretty good. It's another nice sort of settled day here in Ballarat. How's the rest of the state? Yeah, look, I mean, personally, I think it looks like a gorgeous day out there at the moment. There's a bit of cloud in the southwest and central areas as well, but the rest of the state looks clear and sunny. Beautiful, really. And then in terms of our temperatures as well across the state, as well as keeping dry for the rest of the day, you know, we're in the mid to high 20s across the south and then, you know, the mid to high, or mid to, sorry, low to mid 30s in the north. So, Yeah, look, I personally think it looks like a beautiful day out there and it's just all due to this big high pressure system that we have over the state directing some, you know, south to southwesterly winds across us. And it's just going to continue into Friday as well for tomorrow. We've got a very sunny day look ahead uh, on Friday. Those temperatures very similar again. 
And then on Saturday we actually have uh, wind starting to turn a little bit calmer and a little bit more northerly, which means our temperatures are going to start to increase. On Saturday in particular we'll have a sunny day and those temperatures in the south, you know about the mid to high 20s and those in the north uh, mid to high 30s. And then by Sunday in particular our winds tend a little bit more northwesterly, so it brings across a lot of the heat that we have over the eastern parts of the country down into our state and we've got increases up to about the mid to high 30s across the state, even up into the low 40s in the very northern parts of the state. So Mildura getting up to about 44 degrees, uh, Aubrey-Wodonga 40 and even the city itself in the southwest about 34 degrees. So Sunday looks like it's going to be a really hot day and those northwesterlies are quite windy as well so we're a bit worried about those fire danger ratings particularly in the northwest. There should be an extreme fire danger rating out on Sunday so please be aware of that one. The lucky thing is though on Sunday if you're looking for a cool change it is going to be coming in the southwest in particular it's in Sunday morning and it's going to start to move over you know the Mallee and then down to maybe the southwest Gippsland in that northwest to southeast orientation by about the late afternoon and then excuse me move through the eastern parts earlier on Monday morning. So it is going to be a hot day on Sunday but then we do have a cooler change coming and that will hopefully keep everyone a little bit cooler from about Monday onwards where we might get a couple of showers here and there on the south of the ranges and in the east as well, perhaps a couple of thunderstorms as well. But yeah, look, we've just got to get through the heat first, Jane, on the Saturday and Sunday, and then we've got some cooler conditions from Monday onwards. Yes, I will definitely be uh, hiding away somewhere <laughs> with air conditioning on uh, on Sunday afternoon. I have got a text in here saying, hi, Jane, is there any rain for central Victoria near Ballarat in the coming week? It doesn't sound like that's the case, though, does it, Steph? No, definitely not. The outlook looks quite dry. I think from about Monday, Tuesday, once of those thunderstorms, there could be a couple of mills here and there. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean nothing as substantial as those rainfall figures that you read out just before we crossed to, um, you know, what's happening now. But I just wanted to make a comment on how substantial those rainfall figures are that some people are reading out. I know our summary for January doesn't come out until next Monday, but, you know, across the state, particularly in the northern central parts, I mean, there's some, you know, on average and then higher than average rainfall totals. And I don't have the list in front of me in particular. They're still being worked out. But I remember on the days when, you know, in the last month or so when we did have those large rainfall days, a lot of stations breaking their daily records. So, yeah, look, really interested to see what comes out on Monday for the statistics across the state because, like you said, it's been incredibly wet and, you know, for the next week or so, not at all much rainfall coming. Yeah, indeed. We've actually got a text in here from Tom saying, G'day, Jane. It's been our wettest January in 104 years at Colabane Estate between... Uh, Renansdale and Sutton Grange. So I think uh, there has been a lot of a lot of water around the state. Uh, but we also have a text in here uh, saying uh, King Island the driest start to the year in 85 years in severe drought. Apparently, so obviously not something that's been replicated all across the country. Just the uh, eastern seaboard. Absolutely. No, I mean, the whole country feels a little bit different at the moment. I know everyone's complaining, particularly in Melbourne, where I am, about, you know, the lack of warm days in January. But then the rest of the country has seen, you know, some, some significant heat, some significant rainfall and flooding. So, yeah, look, everything's a little bit different all over the place at the moment, Jane. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you for keeping us uh, updated. Again, Stephanie Miles. Thanks, Jane. Have a great day. Cheers, you too. Stephanie Miles there from the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, some more of your texts coming in on the text line 0467 842 uh, 44.5 mils for January from Alex at uh, Snabernak. Uh, lush, dry land, loosen, unusual for summer. Thank you, Alex. 
Uh, one from Stephen saying, uh, G'day, Jane. 57 mils of rain for January at Yarra Rock in the north, sorry, northwest of Caniva. Uh, obviously, just read out uh, Tom's message about being the wettest in 104 years between Redsdale and Sutton Grange. Uh, sorry, Tom has just sent an amended text in. 208 millimetres for January in that 100 in uh, 2024. So the wettest in 104 years. Uh, keep your texts coming in. It's 0467842722 is the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Jane McNaughton here with you today. It is 15 minutes until the next news at one o'clock. Now, Peak Wool Body Wool Producers Australia has withdrawn its support for the National Electronic Identification Scheme for sheep and goats. It's in September 2022, the country's agriculture ministers agreed on making electronic ear tags mandatory for all sheep and goats born from January 1st, 2025, following Victoria's example in making tags mandatory from 2017. But individual states and territories are responsible for the design, rollout and funding of the scheme. Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison says while the group is strongly supportive of a national IED scheme in principle, that support is cognizant on the scheme being nationally consistent. There's three main key points uh, that we have concerns about. And one's the harmonisation of the states. Uh, The second one is the database. And the third one is the continued funding, equitable funding of the database and, of course, for e-tags. Okay, so on that first point, uh, you have concerns about harmonisation. Is that because even though it is uh, a national scheme, each state is essentially running its own race? Yes, through best efforts to get them all into one room and have um, harmonisation, we don't feel that this has been achieved as, as well as it could be as yet. And one of the issues is um, there'll be a lot of double tagging of uh, sheep in other states, um, which already have a mob-based tag in their ear. And after, you know, two years, three years, um, they may require an EID um, in their ear to on-sell them. So double tagging is a huge concern um, in some states. So for most states, they'll start introducing the scheme in 2025 and then two years later, all sheep and lambs will need to be tagged. So is that what you mean there, that 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 two-year window means that there will be a double up? Yes, exactly. It. Um, you know, in, in Victoria back in the day, you know, we had a five five year phasing um, that worked well. And yeah, the other states need to. Um, I would suggest, you know, look into that um, because otherwise, yeah, wool growers or any sheep grower, you know, that has to double tag sheep with an added, added cost of an AID, you know, that won't go over well. And we just think, you know, we're supporting our growers in uh, withdrawing our support at this until this is properly looked at. And a five-year window that would cover the almost cover the lifespan of most sheep. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's almost got them. Yeah, you know, the majority of them done as in Victoria. But yeah, it's certainly a lot better than trying to retag after two years, five years. Um, yeah, it just gives everyone a better opportunity to phase in. Your other concern was, as you said, about you want equitable funding for the scheme. Uh, as things stand, will. Will funding vary between states and farmers across borders may be paying more or less money to to be part of the scheme, depending on what state they're in? Yeah, so different states have um, announced different funding models at the moment. 
and you know, Victoria, we have the comp funds that do, does assist with the um, funding of our um, tags here in Victoria. Um, but you know, unfortunately, unless there's continued funding for um, the tags and the database um, that is consistent, all of a sudden, you know, some producers in different states will be um, doing a lot more heavy lifting than other states, which again is inequitable and it's not harmonised. What's the the most that that producers would be willing to pay for for these tags? Uh, look, I think it needs to be um, well under a dollar personally, um, well under a dollar. But, you know, some states are paying in excess of $2 at the moment. So uh, to get that buy-in um, for um, buy security, I think we do need um, tags well under a dollar personally, yes. What do they cost in Victoria at the moment? Um, 83 cents has been one quote, but, yeah, I think um, the last lot I got was a dollar, but, yeah, 83 cents. Wool Producers Australia making this decision and this announcement to withdraw its support for the scheme. What what effect is that going to have on, on the scheme's rollout? Yeah, look, we're only one voice of um, 10 around the table, but um, we just feel we're better off to um, uh, withdraw our support now, let the other people around the table t- take notice of what we're, why we've done it. Um, otherwise, you know, down the track two or three years, um, these problems um, will arise. Um, so we certainly want, you know, this to be sorted out now rather than two, three years back when, you know, it's, it's the horse is bolted as such. And to be clear, Steve, you are supportive of a national EID scheme. You're just not supportive of the way it's being rolled and planned out at the moment? That's exactly right, Angus, yes. That was Wool Producers Australia President Steve Harrison speaking there with Angus Verley. Uh, on the text line, we're still getting in your rainfall figures. We love the rainfall figures here on the Victorian Country Hour. Uh, Peter from Howlong West, near uh, up in the northeast of the state, had 23.6 mils for the month of January, uh, 68 mils at Cabane's, uh, which is just out of sale. From Luke, thank you, Luke. Uh, Nathan in Wodonga has asked uh, when Warwick's coming back. I know he's been gone for a little while and um, backfilling other people's positions and the like before that. Uh, You'll be pleased to know Warwick is back in the chair on Monday. So uh, I'll be with you today and tomorrow. And then Mr Warwick Long will be back in the chair on Monday. Uh, Nev in Bendigo has sent through his rainfall from the 25th of December to the 25th of January, which was 250 mils. Uh, Peter at Kangaroo Flat had 183 mils for January. Uh, and we've got another one in here from Tom saying they are now a dollar or more. Uh, this is to do with the ear tags for sheep and goats. Uh, they are now a dollar or more, and they need to and they charge seven dollars to tag any that lose their tags at the sale yards. We usually lose one or two every time we yard them. Thank you for that, Tom. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. And sticking with livestock, over four thousand eight hundred steers were up for grabs at yesterday's blue ribbon weaner sale at the Wangaratta sale yards. Solid prices were a win for vendors after several months of unpredictable weather. Faith Tabalugian caught up with livestock agent Justin Keane in the middle of the sale. I've seen a, a steady improvement over the last month. Um, obviously rain in, in Queensland and New South Wales has just um, offered a bit of strength into this market um, and I suppose we're probably seeing the best of certainly what the, what we've seen of uh, 2024. We've seen that here today um, with the likes of those Kenya cattle. There's 167 of the Ballantyne family cattle here um, that weighed about 350 down to 320, 30 kilo. They've made around $4.38 down to $4.25 or 6 uh, cents per kilo. 
So that's a, a significant improvement as the month's gone on. Um, very nice cattle and well handled, but yeah, certainly it is gathering momentum, as is the whole livestock industry um, as a whole, you know, the last, last two or three weeks, yeah. That is a very important point because we're only recovering from a, a big dip and, you know, some, some would report even nearly a cattle crash. Um, so you've got to, you've got to take into account that that $4 odd for these lead weaners historically is not a, a wheel-beaten amount of money. It's, it's, it's reward, I think. It's got to a level of reward for the, for the vendor, um, the breeder. But it's certainly, um, historically, it's not a, an exceptional high. But it is, it is, I think, the breeder today at that sort of money, um, they find it sustainable. And the majority of um, breeders that we have here today, are they local? Yeah, very much so. The northeast region, um, you know, Mansfield through to Wodonga and up into our Kiwa Valleys, do, we do attract some cattle from those areas. Um, but in the northeast, yes, all, I'd say 95% of those cattle have come from here. And it's drawn uh, a bunch of interstate buyers as well, is that right? Yeah, a strong commission buyer presence. Um, three or four leading commission buyers that are heading into northern New South Wales and Queensland. So um, yeah, that's a, a whole base of the market that wasn't there, you know. I mean, prior to these rains, these summer rains, which, you know, happen, we, they've had ongoing rains now, so the confidence then builds. And it's, you're talking about large, huge areas that these cattle are going back into that are back in production. So... Um, you know, it's a great thing for our market overall. And they are looking in pretty good nick, so do you put that down mainly to the weather? Well, our, our season in this area has been fair. Um, could have been a little bit wet in the winter time, but we've gone on to some reasonable spring. Um, the northeast region is often a pretty secure area, and as a result, the calves have, have done well again this year. But, um, yeah, no, they're a credit to our vendors, to our, to our clients uh, again. That was Coker and Parker Director Justin Keane speaking there with Faith Tabalugian at the Wangaratta Sale Yards yesterday. Let's check out what's happening in the sale yards today. First up, we'll head north into New South Wales for the Wagga Land Market with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. A substantial increase in lamb numbers this week with 53,000 lambs and 27,000 sheep. The market showed resilience and even recorded slight gains in the extra heavy lamb classes. The overall quality was good, bolstered by significant presence of grain-assisted lambs. Buyers showed a preference for well-covered lambs, offering premiums, while leaner types requiring more finished face discounts. Trade lambs experienced a modern decline of four to ten dollars selling within a range of 130 to 170 averaging around 660 cents a kilogram carcass weight heavy lambs weighing 26 to 30 remained unchanged priced between 184 and 215 the category of lambs over 30 kilos gained a few dollars with prices ranging from 208 to 268 averaging 740 cents a kilogram carcass weight store lamb prices saw a modest easing of anywhere from 4 to 14 as prices did fluctuate greatly they ranged from 69 to 129 and lambs intended for feeding on peaked at 153. Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks for that, Leanne. 
Uh, now back down to Victoria for the sheep market with Chris Agnew in Hamilton. Good afternoon, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Hamilton agents yarded 23,000 head at today's sheep market, representing an increase of 4,000 head on the previous offering a fortnight ago. It was an excellent yarding of trade sheep with less heavyweights on offer, and the majority of the yarding were crossbred ewes with merinos making up approximately 30% of the offering. Not all the regular processes were present, however those that were participated actively in the market, which was softer by 5 to $10 per head for heavyweights in excess of 32 kilos. However, competition was very strong for all light and trade weights to be dearer by 5 to $8 per head, equating to 20 to 40 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Compared to a market two weeks ago, the general run of mutton realising between 310 and 380 to average between 330 and 360 cents. Crossbred ewes sold to $118, the merino ewes to $100, and merino weathers to $120 per head. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thank you, Chris. And uh, we'll go across to Bansdale now in Gippsland with Brennan Fletcher for the Cattle Report. Good afternoon, Brennan. G'day, Jane. Numbers increased to 550 15, that's 40 more than the sale of a fortnight ago with the regular buyers operating in a dearer market. Quality was limited with cows representing over half of the sale. Young cattle sold 30 to 45 cents dearer, mostly to restockers. Grown lots lifted 15 to 35 cents. Cows improved 10 to 20 with processors loading cows for an estimated 436 to 533 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls gained 7 cents. The yearling steers sold from 286 to 296, the heifer portion 242 to 310. Ground steers and bullocks 255 to 318, manufacturing steers 235 to 275. Most light and medium weight cows 125 to 255, heavyweights 210 to 285 and heavy bulls 216 to 255. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thank you, Brendan. A few more of your texts on the text line. One here talking about the uh, identification scheme for sheep and cattle. The cattle industry introduced the RFID 20 years ago to uh, confirm with the nation- conform with the national standards for traceability, which are essential to enable a successful eradication campaign uh, should ever, should we ever get foot and mouth disease, the sheep industry keep finding excuses to maintain their inability to meet the national standards. They will have some hard questions to answer should we ever get foot and mouth disease and Australia is locked out of our export markets for a prolonged period as a result. That one there from John in Harrow. And another text here asking whether uh, it's all sheep and goats that need tagging. Does my pet goat need tagging? According to the Agriculture Victoria website, all cattle, sheep and ghosts must be tagged with an NLIS tag before leaving a property. This includes animals being given away or as kept as pets. There are two types of tags available for cattle, sheep and goats. They only need to be tagged if they move around properties is my understanding. So maybe go head along to the uh, Agriculture Victoria website for more information. I'll try and squeeze in a couple more of your rainfall texts. Uh, We've got... Phil in Tullerine, 236 mils in that part of the state. Uh, John just south of Benjaroop, 156 mils for January. And that's about all we've got time for on the country. Oh, there are a few more rainfall texts. I'll save them up and you can hear about that tomorrow. And we can always keep talking about rainfall tomorrow on the country hour as well. Have a great afternoon. It's now news time, one o'clock.